Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram and Alex Burke. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Simon. Hello, Alex. Hello, Simon. Great to have you here, Alex. Uh, right, first of all, um, I want to say thank you uh, to Guy Bellingham uh, for being a pretty amazing guest last, well, I was going to say last week, it was actually two weeks ago, wasn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, thank you very, very much for, for being with us, Guy. That was a super episode. Um, right, let's uh, do a quick catch up and uh, let's see what's been happening in the Fenlands, Andrew. Um, not a lot, really. I can't think. Oh, I know. I've been in the darkroom. That's probably all I've done photographically. But nothing, I haven't, I've got a big stack of large format negatives, both pinhole and, you know, um, lensed negatives sitting on one of my enlarger baseballs ready for me to work on. But I had some other deadlines. I'm part of a little Facebook group shooting box cameras, you know, and uh, that's run by Neil Piper. And you have to shoot. I'm not sure whether you have to shoot a different box camera every month, but I have. Like I have. A, I have done so far. Like a handmade box camera of sorts, just some. Well, you know the sort of thing. Like, uh, I've, what have I shot so far? This this last one, I used a one two seven Kodak Brownie. Okay, just basic um, so box so, things. Uh, yes, and then I've used uh, Hawkeye Kodak Hawkeye Flash with the lens flipped, so you get crazy weird. Um, things going on with the lens flipped. I've used um, uh, uh, various Agfa box cameras. So basically these things you can get in your thrift stores with one shutter speed, which is, I don't know, 40th of a second probably. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Some of them are really sophisticated though. I've got one, at least one with two apertures and a couple of cameras with built-in filters, which is really interesting. So you just slide, uh, slide little uh, piece of metal in and out, and you get a yellowy green filter. Wow. And one, one of them is so filthy and smeary that you get a, a very impressionistic picture. <laughs> a soft focus lens, right? Yeah. So I uh, I shot this roll of one two seven film. It was not stuff I'd cut down. It was re- rear rear pan. I struggle with that word, and. Because I can't easily scan 127 on my Epson V500, I, uh, I went and made some prints on some 5x7 paper. And that was lovely. I'm, you know, it was, the prints were nice, you know, and yeah. it was sharp in, in, in places. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my July effort. So that's pretty much all I've been up to. And it's so darn hot here today. Probably not. What, uh, what are you calling hot? Uh, 91 Fahrenheit, 33 centigrades. That's actually that's pretty hot. That's probably actually pretty yeah. muggy too. Oh yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> it's going to be cold. It's going to thunder. There'll be a thunderstorm in about two hours, Alex, and then it'll be then it'll be snowing tomorrow. So um, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Andrew, you've been busier than that. Have I, I? I know you've. you've well, I've been banned from Facebook. Well, well, <laughs> now have you have you been banned, or did you just press the wrong button? No, I, I tell you what, I was <laughs> actually what I was trying to do. I think I've mentioned to you off air that I'm going to, this is the first time I've mentioned it in public, next year when I have more time, I'm going to start little one-on-one workshops photographing with large format cameras in the Fenlands and then coming back and doing some developing and making a basic print in the darkroom. Now, my darkroom's really small, so I can only get one person in there, and that begs all sorts of questions around COVID and so on and so forth. But anyway, um, I'm not going to charge a great deal of money for this, um, really just to cover costs and pay for materials. 
but I was going to make a Facebook page, you know, not a, so I, I, I Googled how to make a Facebook page and I got halfway through it. Well, I got quite a long way through it and I, and I actually published it and I thought, oh, actually, I don't want to publish it now because it's, I still got some more work to do on it. So there was an option to unpublish it. <laughs> so I, I pressed unpublish and it came up with some questions saying, why do you want to unpublish? And, and one of the options was, well, because I haven't finished it yet. So I pressed that. And then it just kicked me out of Facebook and said, you've got to log goodbye. back in. <laughs> yeah, goodbye. I don't know who you are. And it's, I got an email saying there was a suspicious person on your account. <laughs> I've, had to, uh, I've had to scan my drive, driving license and send it to them. And now they just say, well, get back to you and see if we can let you back in or not. Or worse to that effect. Wow. So it's a disaster. I can't access either of the Facebook groups that I, I run and I can't use Messenger. I've had conversations with folks and all my messages have disappeared, I think. So, um, yeah. You deleted Facebook. <laughs> so what else have I been doing, Simon? Well, yes, you, you've definitely done something else. Because, I was, uh, because I've actually started to go drive, drive in the car, uh, which means I'm actually starting to listen to podcasts again. And uh, ooh, yes. Yes, yeah, yesterday, I was listening to you on the podcast, and it wasn't the Lensless podcast. No, it was A Light in the Dark. That's a, a, another podcast, Alex, uh, run by John Gregory in... Uh, where is he? Uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, and sorry, beautiful Louisville. Kentucky. Beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we did a round table discussion. There was meant to be Kevin Lane, and there was um, the ubiquitous Wayne Setzer and me. You could call me the ubiquitous Andrew as well, I guess. <coughs> and I think John really likes the format, so he's going to do it again. I think he's going to do another one on the eighth of August, which I, I think I'm invited to. But I'm not really sure. Having your back, <laughs> but I've got lots of things to talk about, <laughs> and we're inviting questions, and and it's a kind of roundtable, darkroom discussion. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a good chat. I've uh, I was I was listening to it, and I've, I haven't quite finished it yet. But you 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 leave part way through it. I do. Um, yeah, I had yeah. to go for a do a barbecue or something. Yeah. So they just they just bad mouth you for the rest of it, Andrew. I don't know if you've, <laughs> if you heard the rest of it, but no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a good it's a good listen. And uh, Wayne uh, Wayne sets uh, the bit where I'm at at the moment. He's he's talking about uh, caffeinol, caffeinol, uh, yeah. which is something that he he got us very excited about when he was on our show. Yeah, I developed a few sheets of FP4 in caffeinol CL, and the negatives look great, but they're in my pile next to some pyro HD negatives, and I want to just make prints on both and just see how. They behave, but, you know. Right? How much? How much different the printing process will be? I'm sure. Yeah, highlight never... really. Highlight control really. I guess, Alex. You know. Yeah. 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 Because I was those pictures I was printing. No, no, not those ones I was doing last weekend. I did nip in the darkroom last night, and I'd I'd used my Horizon Russian panoramic camera last weekend or weekend before. And I had Fomapan 100 in there, which is cheap and cheerful. And I really like it, but it's a pig to control the contrast. Excuse me. And I, uh, I, I cut the development time in Ilford's LC29. And I still, to get a, well, a print that I was half happy with, I still had to go dial in grade one on my color head. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things. I won't really use Fomapan if I can help it in bright light conditions. Um, but... 
every people are always looking for the magic bullet, aren't they, Alex, when it comes to film developing? And yeah, I think that um, was like I contrast. realized with black and white, which you know, I don't do much of, but I realized early on that it's it seemed like you could experiment indefinitely with it. You yeah, know, you could always sit there, and I all I really shot was um, Delta one hundred and then yeah. HP five four hundred. And I found the 400 to generally be a lot trickier to print in the darkroom with. And I ended up just being like, I mean, I, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I've mastered black and white. It was definitely kind of a side thing for me, but I could figure out how to make Delta 100 look good and print, print well. So, well, I think you, I mean, we can touch on this a bit later on, but what I was listening to you um, in your lockdown blog earlier, and you were talking about the joy of just limiting yourself to one stock. I think you yeah. were talking about quarter 160 and how powerful that can be. Yeah, sometimes just, yeah, really making one film stock work for you, depending on your situation, or, or even making it work for multiple situations. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I get torn constantly. I, I do, I lean very much towards using a limited range of stocks, but every now and again, I just get sucked down that rabbit hole, you know? What does this do? Yeah. yeah. What, what look can I get here? Yeah. And then I, and then I curse myself because I know that I have, I, I've yet got much more to do on, you know, FP4 or HP5. And, Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and I think pretty much, pretty much any combination of film and developer, you can make work and get really nice results. And and right. you can always be you, you can to, always like, be chasing your tail. I think. Yeah, you could really master one. You know, if you wanted to make HP five work for you, you could probably make it work for one hundred percent of your work through different developing and, well, and printing methods, or just about. So the Ilford sort of conventional grain films HP five and FP four developed in Pyrocat HD, which is sort of the um, I tried PMK Pyro, but I don't have enough upper body strength to develop PMK Pyro. That <laughs> you need to be shaking it every fifteen seconds, and you, you need take it to the hardware to... store and use their paint, you know, shake. Well, you need yeah, you need to <laughs> shake it really hard as well. Not just you don't need to pussy about with it. You need to give it a good old shake every fifteen seconds for about ten or fifteen minutes, and I'm wow. I'm knackered at the end of it. But PyroCat HD is um, is much more civilized and. Matt Marash, I don't know if you you know of Matt. He's mm-hmm. been on the show and he's a co-host on the uh, Film Photography Podcast. Uh, he's a great fan of PyroCat HD. And for him, that's his magic bullet, you know, because like all pyro developers, you get this staining, uh, which um, helps control uh, highlight density and, and allows you to print more easily. That's, that's, that's the idea. And people use that for platinum palladium direct prints. They do, and you can use it. Yes, because you get a really contract, you get a really dense negative, don't you? Or yeah, and uh, but again, there's a lot to play around with. Former guest Steve Segersby, who no no doubt we'll have on again. He does. He's much more interested, really, in the print process rather than cameras and photography, really. Mm -hmm. And he plays around with platinum, and I think he uses PyroCat HD. I was just going to say, when you say like he's uh, more interested in that than cameras, I've been to Steve's house. (laughs) <laughs> he's got yeah. plenty of cameras I know he has but he doesn't talk about them much like no. you know he's not obsessed by them but he has got plenty of nice cameras and uh, yeah so he I think so he uses a different dilution for PyroCat HD if you're doing those processes you can use you know sort of slightly more of the chemical I think but uh, right. I haven't got that I'm just using it for conventional film really hmm. I've no idea how we got down this particular conversation but um, it happened yeah, yeah. Simon, what have you been up to? Yeah, let's just we'll cover cover me off. Um, there's uh, two two things. Um, one, I've uh, I was out on Sunday uh, this week uh, with the Six Towns Darkroom. We still haven't actually started up the Six Towns Darkroom because of uh, 
COVID and things. Although I think we're going to get we're getting close to the point of working out a way how we can actually be together in in that space. So we've got a studio to to be in, and we can be far enough away from each other and and talk at each other and stuff like that, um, and perhaps take turns to go into the dark room and wash your hands and all, all of those things and masks and, and, and so on and so on. So fingers crossed that will be starting up soon. Um, but we did a, we did a, a socially distanced outing um, and uh, we met up with, um, we, we went literally halfway between our, our, our place and our uh, Scottish um, honorary member, um, which is Fraser, Mr. Fraser Yule. Um, and we met up in Lancashire and went to the, uh, the coast at Fleetwood. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, and uh, we went to the uh, there's an estuary. Uh, did you go mm. and uh, do the boats? Uh, the no, we. I stayed in a hotel right by the estuary and by the boats, but I was there interviewing a potential candidate for our company years and years ago. Well, it was a kind of we used to interview people by taking them out for a beer, really, you know. <laughs> and uh, that was, and we met him at some hotel overlooking the bay in Fleetwood. <laughs> that's all i can remember about it oh, well it was uh, it's a it's a it's a good spot and if you get there mm -hmm. at the right time uh the tide comes in and there are like these drainage channels but it's in marshland and the problem was that the 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 right time to be there was at four o'clock in the morning uh, for that so that didn't happen strangely enough with a two hour, two hour well drive. if you were dedicated sorry <laughs> yes. simon if you were dedicated <laughs> like i'm sure our guest is yeah. about and, and we'll drag him onto that subject in a minute you know he's, he clearly doesn't mind getting up at eight to talk to us two muppets yeah. so uh, i'm sure he must get he must get up he must be at least a bit like ben horn and get up you know in about three in the morning but well, that was it it was 20 past four uh, when i got up although that's it i actually I said, yeah but oh, you needed to be there at uh, yeah, they, you should have got you shouldn't not have gone to bed you should have gone and slept in your car shouldn't yeah, you right. if you were really dedicated yeah, it was quite remiss of me uh, but uh, so we 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 met up with um with with fraser and also gonna um, say hello to um uh paul bullock and robert price uh, because they were uh, two other listeners to our podcast there was up there were more people there but they don't listen to me so um i'm not gonna bother um but um that'd be your wife would it no 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 um and yeah so we had a we had a, a really really good time there uh, wallowing around in the in the mud after the the water had gone away uh, you have to be careful because if it's anything like morecambe you know you can walk out in the mud and well, never no, be seen again no yeah. well you could you could probably get washed away down a drainage channel maybe or something like that but it was just incredibly easy to to fall over but it, we all managed to stay upright but we all had our problems um every, every one of us such as uh, robert managed to take um uh all but i think it took 11 shots on his uh on his bronica and then uh or 12 shots on the bronica but certainly then uh, opened it up to take take the film out and realised it actually loaded the film backwards. Oh, well, well done, man. Yeah, so uh, I can't really put my hand up and saying like I've never done that before because I absolutely have. Um, but uh, he then he then had to run round in the mud literally because we were finishing at this point to try and take all his photographs all over again. Um, and it's a real shame for him as well because the light was so much better uh, when we first got there to the point where we had to redo them. Um, That's but, a shame. Yeah, but it was a it was a it was, that was a really good day. Um, so uh, and it's just just brilliant to be actually be out with real people instead of just. Uh, you know, talking to him on the phone and, and stuff like mm -hmm. that so that that was wonderful um and 
I, t I, I took quite a range of lenses for my uh, Meridian camera, um, but predictably I only used one, and that was a mm -hmm. lens I've just never used before. Was I haven't had the chance, and that was my a uh, seventy-five millimeter, uh, six point eight. Uh, Grandagon, or as uh, Fraser, Yule, Fraser Yule would call it, a Grandagon. Uh, Grandagon. Grandagon, that's better. <laughs> um, apologies to all the Scots everywhere, but th that actually did get that did get said. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that 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 was good, and and, uh, and Fraser was also using his uh, Macroma uh, camera, um, so that's, which is a chroma camera with uh, top Tartan. bellows. And talking about uh, chroma cameras, that's, that's the other thing I've been up to because I did, actually yesterday, I did a day with Steve, Steve Lloyd at Chroma Towers, um, helping him uh, make bellows, and that's a job and a half. <laughs> I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. It, it sort of started off okay, and then it just gets, you think, oh, this is getting a bit awkward, and this is getting a bit tricky, and then think, okay, I've done that, and then the next bit's trickier, and then it gets trickier and trickier and trickier to the point there's, oh, dear, I don't like this anymore. I think if I buy a Chroma camera, and I'm tempted, well, is Chroma a carbon adventurer because it, it can be adapted to 5 by 7 I um, I just need to know that I've not got one where the bellows have been folded by Simon Forster. <laughs> <laughs> I, can tell, I, I can tell you now there, there are no chromas out there with bellows folded by me because i just don't know. yeah steve here you go I'll, I'll i'll knock something in with a hammer instead you just you just fold these bellows yeah do they end up with a template that's cut you cut a template and then fold it properly i mean i imagine i don't know how it would look spread out almost the fabric or yeah well it, it, it's already it's already got it got them cut out uh, and he uses uh, a vinyl material uh, okay. which is uh, i mean he, he lives very very close to uh, a voxel car plant um, that's mm, a, okay and uh, so there are lots mm. of places locally making quite specialized uh, vinyl materials which he's got access to interesting and, uh, and the stuff he uses is it's, it's just brilliant um, but he he also um so yeah it gets it gets these things laser cut uh, so, so the template it was already already cut out. So we're not we don't weren't marking things with chalk and going around with. But you're still folding it. You're still, oh yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and you've got to you've got to get the ribs in there and they're in the right places, and they've got to be aligned correctly. And that that yeah. that bit I could manage. I could do that bit, um, and then fold the the bellows in on themselves to make like a cone shape. That that was tricky. Uh, yeah. but doable but then when it it's actually, probably a finger workout after a while you know it's oh, probably oh, without a... doubt well, i'm not musical <laughs> yeah. you know so i mean if i could play yeah. the, if i could play the flute then yeah. I'd, I'd be pretty damn good at making bellows but that was where it all fell over for me and i i, I kept making mistakes you can only play the fool <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly so um so yeah I, I i did other things instead so um so yep yeah, so that's, that's made tea and uh, no, tea, tea was made for me, so that was that, 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 that was good. I had the, had the full service there. Um, okay, so uh, that's that's my week. So, um, what, have you, what have you been up to, Alex? Well, it's summertime here in the Rockies, so I've been trying to uh, get out and do some backpacking. Not trying to, I have been um, getting out and doing some backpacking. So we have plenty of mountains that are well over twelve thousand feet, and it's really a fantastic time to be just up in these high valleys. So. Um, a couple weeks ago, a little over a week ago, I went to the San Juans for about a week or so and did um, 
I was going to do this loop around somewhere Wetterhorn Peak, and I ended up just loving the basin below the peak so much that I spent several nights just camped in this basin. It just just a splendid. It was this basin full of wildflowers with this big pyramid shaped mountain that's over fourteen thousand feet high um, in the distance. Not in the distance, but you're pretty close to it actually. So. Uh, I just enjoyed watching various sunrises and sunsets and afternoon storms come through. And uh, that's kind of what I do a lot in the summer is backpack with the 4x5 and get out there. So the San Juan National Forest is southwest, southwest. Of, of, of you? Yeah. So well, that's that quite be- a hike, quite a way. Uh, you- yeah, it's actually about seven hours or so to get out there, but mm. easy drive and just uh, over the hill, if you will. And um, so, but it's a really big area. The San Juans, there's several wilderness areas, you know, uh-huh. truly roadless areas there. Um, there's a few highways that intersect the San Juans, but it's a quite a large roadless tract. So there's the Incapagre wilderness, there's the Weminuch wilderness, which I probably pronounced both of those incorrectly, and several other smaller wilderness areas that are around there. And they just take, make up, there's so much hiking you can do there. So. It looks uh, amazing. I'm looking at just the stock pictures that come up on Google, and there's yeah. some folks on a on a wooden rail rail railroad. Um, yeah, like, look like cattle carts, really, but they're all piled in and looking. Yeah, at that's a still them. functioning steam train. Is it? Um, yeah. So I actually yeah. last year I did a hike where I started in Silverton. Well, I started at a pass near Silverton, and I hiked through. And then on the way out, since you just beat after five days of hiking took the train up to Silverton and had a car parked there. So it worked out pretty well. You Where could, did you, you could... go from Silverton that you're going to be impressed, Simon? Did you head to the Twin Sisters East or San Miguel Peak or any of those? Or was that too far away? Uh, I went into a remote basin that's kind of unnamed in the uh, Wemenuch wilderness. So just uh-huh. an area I picked out on a map. So it was kind of, it was southeast of Silverton is where I went. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you'll just see a bunch of really incredible looking peaks that are uh, pushing 13,000 feet or so. Kendall yeah. Peak, Little Giant Peak. I bet they, yes, they, yes, they, I sound, like, yeah. they sound like yeah. tiny little things. <laughs> there's the needles, and there's all sorts of uh, really fantastic mountains out there. And this time of year, there's good wildflowers, the Indian paintbrush. Um, these beautiful red and maroon flowers are all over, and our state flower, the columbine. So it's a nice time to be in the high country. Are you you going out to and staying in these places for about a week and then a week at home? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, I've kind of been doing, um, yeah, kind of a week on, week up. It's been a really weird year for planning stuff. I usually have art shows all summer long. Okay. Um, so I usually do these weekend art shows, which are mass gatherings. So they're not happening this year, obviously. So mm. I would, uh, but usually I'd have about 14 of those shows during the, like, middle five months of the year so from spring through summer i'd have quite a few of those so every other weekend was an art show and then i would try to get some backpacking and shooting in between but this year it's been a little bit of um kind of a little more freedom there but it's still an interesting year to try to plan stuff so still it's quite accessible to go to the mountains you can easily social distance if you're in the right areas and get away from people and it's been pleasant yep simon I'm I'm just uh, staring at, at uh, Google Silverton. Maps. Yeah, I was as well. And, and, and Silverton, I'm thinking, <laughs> this is a very nice part of the world. It's quite a landscape, isn't it? I mean, look, you know, put Google Maps in terrain mode and just look at the you know ridiculous peaks there. It's quite impressive. It's a lot. It's a very mountainous area. You can really understand why most Americans don't even need a passport, let alone want one. 
because you've just got yeah. you've just got pretty much everything, haven't you? A lot of landscape here. Every, yeah, it's quite impressive, and it's so you know it's. For me, with large format stuff, it's a lot easier for me to drive somewhere than trying fl- to fly somewhere in all reality. You know, and I can I can do a mix of road, you know, camping in my vehicle versus also hiking, camping that way, too. And it's really just kind of easy to have your stuff with you and wander f- wherever you want in this massive western half of the country. So when you went to Silverton, do you do you camp in your in your in your vehicle you know i know when we had ben horn on and when you watch his youtube videos he's mm-hmm. he, he sometimes sleeps in his van but not he normally makes camp somewhere doesn't he and then does a bit yeah. of uh does a bit of scouting and hikes somewhere but and then sometimes he'll sleep in his car if he's on a you know needs to be up early somewhere what's uh how do you approach those sort of situations yeah so it kind of uh, depends a lot on the season i would have uh in the like in the fall, I tend to there's so much great views that we have these aspen forests that turn brilliant gold against snow capped peaks. And in the fall, I do a lot of van camping where I'm just mostly in my vehicle and I have areas. I know the area pretty well and I know what areas I'll be going to in the morning, so I know where to be at sunrise. And I you know I might be driving or maybe taking a few mile hike before the sun comes up or something like that. But generally I'm camping in my vehicle fairly close to where I'm gonna shoot. In the summer, I much prefer to walk to camp, so I might go five or ten miles into a valley and um, you know bring my tent and everything with me and spend. I don't usually do these loops where I move every single day. I do end up just staying in one valley for two or three nights and then maybe moving on from there or going to a different place altogether. And uh, I like that where I can see different light happen in one area. And uh, I had a friend recently bring up a kind of interesting point, like, People make it seem like backpacking is this big effort. In some ways, he, he kind of was joking, but it's also true. We kind of got into it because we're lazy and we didn't want to have to do this five-mile hike before sunrise. So we just bring our tent in with us, and then we can roll out of our tent right at sunrise in the exact spot where we want to photograph. We don't have to go hike for an hour or two hours. We're right where we want to be at sunrise. Just roll out of your tent and walk 50 feet. It's pretty amazing, actually. So I've, I've never really uh, viewed wild campers as being lazy people, but I've, I've just completely <laughs> changed my attitude towards them. Now. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, a lot of photographers get into backpacking because they want to be where they want to photograph. So, I mean, some of the spots I do, I could certainly, I could have hiked in the six miles or whatever, um, you know, starting at three in the morning. But I, I just prefer if you go in there, you only hike once and then you get a sunset and a sunrise out of it. And you kind of win for less effort if you think about it. Plus, you, plus you, get, you just get to experience the space where you're at for that much longer as well. Yes. Yeah. And especially when you start doing multiple nights. So, you know, I have these days where I kind of uh, so the the middle days where i'm not really going anywhere i just i'm at camp so you know i make some coffee eat some breakfast after after sunrise and i i kind of walk around the valley kind of find some compositions and then i go back to my tent when the storms start up and read a book for a while and you know just think about where i want to be at sunset it's kind of nice to have these entire days without cell service without any people around to just burn alone to really just enjoy time with yourself outside it's a unique experience that I just don't think you get when you're near a road and you're seeing people the whole time. It's very, very different. Yeah, You're making me feel very jealous. <laughs> but just tell me that, just put me at ease. There are mountain lions or bears or snakes or there's bound to be something that's likely to um, kill you. 
you're not careful. I mean, I I really don't see many mountain lions the way the way people say it is. So don't work. Neither yeah, does Ben Horn. He's tried, no, he even tried to photograph them, and they don't exist. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I really have not. I really, I think I've only ever seen a couple crossing highways. Really, I actually don't. But with the way I've heard it put, is don't worry, they've seen you. Yeah, I'm so, sure. unless they're really hungry, kind of like, I can't think. That, you know. No, I mean, you, anytime you hear of a mountain lion attack, it gets a lot of media attention. So you'd think there's nothing but lions hanging from trees ready to jump on you. <laughs> um, and it's really not the case, obviously. Um, bears are probably a bigger concern. It's more about um, being just being bear safe, uh, you know, storing your food properly. And yeah. I the more the more developed an area you hang out in is the more bear trouble. So if you find that camp that is. I mean, bears hang out around cars a lot. They know there's a lot of people with poorly stored food and, and coolers with no locks on them. And bears know how to open coolers quite easily. And even car doors. They can open car doors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, I really yeah, lock your car doors in bear country. <laughs> and they uh, – but they when you, when you kind of camp in areas where there's never very many people, the bears aren't used to it. They're not looking for human food because they never find it especially if people store it properly. And mm. in Colorado, they don't generally hang out so often around tree line, which is where I like to camp. I'm not saying there aren't bears there. There's also really nowhere to hang your food because there's no trees. So um, kind of kind of a double-edged sword there. But it's uh, it works out fairly well to be around tree line a lot. I like, I like being right at that, like where the trees are barely scrappy. You're right around, you know, 11 to 12,000 feet. And there's some tree cover in case of storms, but you're still in those great views where you don't have trees blocking things. And bears don't love that area as much as they love a couple thousand feet lower where they can have a lot of other campers that are storing their food poorly. So, like I've seen people put beef in a cold river to keep it cold, and that's not a great idea. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> well, I, th- I think this is uh, probably a, a, a good time uh, to... Um, do a proper introduction to our guest andrew so uh, do you want to want to take that away i can do yeah well uh, welcome alex um, people know you're here now so well, we welcome alex burke to the thanks show. for having me you're very very welcome and we uh, well i first i think i first i would have seen you on youtube i think but then i first when i got the copy of the first intrepid magazine mm. um you you were in there um good and saw that and you've been on my sort of mental list. And then when we got organized enough to have a proper list, I stuck you on there for, uh, to get in on the show at some point. But what folks, Alex, um, if you're not familiar with Alex, he's, um, as you haven't guessed by now, a lovely guy. He's very free with his information. He's done some wonderful uh, technical stuff on his website. He's published a couple of eBooks, one of which seems to just cover pretty much anything you'd want to know about film photography. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. And um, he's brings a bit of color to the show, you know. <laughs> and if you just look at his work on Instagram, it's just vibrant, beautiful colors, wonderful composition. So uh, welcome, Alex. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. So why don't you, um, we're going to do that dreadful thing where we ask all our guests just to maybe tell us a little bit how you got into large format because you don't look very old unless you're unless you've just got a young face <laughs> i am uh, 34 i believe yeah, you're not very so, old yeah so, well you know you're it's unusual for a youngish guy to be you know to get hooked into large format so there must be a story there 
Yeah, there is kind of a story. I was, uh, I mean, because you'd expect someone in my age group to go digital. And I think we're seeing more people my age and even younger getting into film, especially with the Intrepid camera. I think we're seeing more of that. It's become more affordable and it's on everyone's radar now. And large formats itself has gotten more popular too. So um, for me, I was, um, I grew up in Estes Park, which is a small mountain town in Colorado, right next to Rocky Mountain National Park. So I lived there from when I was nine to 18. I went through high school and everything there. And then I moved to Phoenix, Arizona by myself. And I didn't really realize how cool the mountains were until I left the mountains. And I was in this land of cactus and desert and 5 million people. And uh, I lived on the north end of Phoenix and I found myself just going out uh, as often as I could. You know, I was an 18 or 19 year old. I would you know, just go into the desert, you know, nighttime drive or whatever, just to get out of that giant city. And um, uh, my dad was not at all a photographer, but he had some, he had a little tiny, like a Kodak one megapixel, just junk camera someone gave him for $10. And um, he's like, I don't need it. Uh, So he gave it to me. And I was taking pictures of the desert with this uh, really lousy camera. And uh, from there, I was starting to break up a little bit. Are you... No, I think it was okay. I think, no, I think uh, there was a bit of a mobile phone going on somewhere, but yes, so it's yeah, now. All right. So, um, yes, I was out in the uh, desert using this crummy camera, and I realized I wanted something with more control to it. And at the time, it was really a, a financial situation, uh, a fully manually, you know, a nice, all the bells and whistles, 35 millimeter film camera was a couple hundred dollars where a digital camera was a few thousand at the time. And I'm like, well, I want a little more control in my photos. So I ended up getting a 35 millimeter camera, which didn't work at all for the resolution I wanted. It was quite low quality. Um, but I, you know, first time I made a prints, I'm like, eh, that's pretty unimpressive. So quite quickly, I was either going to go with a nicer digital camera when they were getting more affordable and bigger. And, and, and then I was also looking at a crown graphic at the time. And I'm like, this thing's $200 and I can get into jump into four by five. There was a Colorado photographer at that point, I'd moved back to Colorado. Um, and there was a Colorado photographer who I admired, who would, um, you know, had lots of books and four, four by five was his format. And I'd seen the prints in person. It was quite amazed. And I kind of had that direction. So I was about 21 or so when I went into large format and I haven't looked back at all. Been a great transition. So did you start with the, uh, do you say crown or speed graphic? Crown graphic. Crown yeah. Graphic. Yeah. It was like $200 on eBay mm-hmm. for a crown, a lens, a bunch of film holders, the old, uh, star Wars lightsaber flash and everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and that got me started. I mean, I, I realized pretty quickly that camera was not great for landscapes. So then I um, got a Toyo and used that for about ten years. Ooh. And then, I, then Hang I realized on, you've, peaked my, you've piqued my interest already. So what, <laughs> what, what Toyo did you get? I had the forty-five A two. I bought it, and it was still they were dirt cheap. It was at that the time I was getting into large format is when lenses were two hundred dollars. A used a nice used Toyo was like five hundred dollars. They were incredibly yeah. affordable. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything with people were just you throwing it away. I mean, I got in larger for like eighty bucks. You know, four by five color and larger for everything was so cheap, and uh, it was a great time to get into large format and. Because no one, everyone was throwing it away. I mean, they were switching to digital so quickly. Because it would have been around 2007 or so. I think it was like 2008 that I got the Toyo probably. And uh, yeah, so I had the 45A2, which looks like the one you have probably. Yeah, Same. yeah. yeah. My, mine, I think the A2 has got 
rubber knobs on. <laughs> and the, yeah, the, but, but I don't, know, I don't know if there's bangs. much. Sorry, I don't know if there's much difference. Mine uh, does have it has a revolving back on. Yeah, um, I don't know what the difference is. It's forty five A, forty five A two. I don't know what the difference is really between the two, but it's much rubber knobs. Rubber yeah. knobs, yeah, <laughs> yeah. much the same. <laughs> um, you know, and then it really, as I started to get more into backpacking, and I did backpack with it. Yeah, it's heavy, isn't it? Uh, it's a brick. I mean, it's a great quick camera. I mean, it's really the quickest four by five to just pop open. You can have a lens on it and be ready to shoot in 30 seconds, you know, in all reality. Well, that's the only other thing, isn't it? You, some you can pack away with lenses, can't you? Some. Yeah, I guess. I think, with it. and I, I think like maybe the Linhoff you can pack with a small lens or so, but it always seemed to be the lens you didn't want to use that you could pack away with it. So yeah, <laughs> it didn't. Because um, the Crown you could pack away with a small lens on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Toyo was a it was a great camera, and it really was everything I needed for landscapes. It was precise. It just was it was really heavy. So that's where like probably three four years ago I started, or probably three ish years ago I started looking at lighter cameras because backpacking was becoming more my thing, and I was heading out of the field and I was packing not very intelligently. I was using my camera bag and just strapping extra stuff onto it, so I'd have this already oversized camera bag, and then I put a tent on the bottom of it. I put a sleeping bag on one side, a pad on the other, food on top, clothing. Yeah, I'm just like strapping bags all over it. It looked like I had a piano on my back for the most part. And um, and I would have 10, 12 film holders, four lenses. Um, I didn't know what it weighed. I knew that it hurt. Uh, <laughs> that was the gist of it. And every you know, after seven miles of hiking, I was completely wrecked. And yeah. I was hiking with a friend one time, and he had a luggage scale with him, and he's like – well, let's put your thing on this. And he said it was 72 pounds. And, and I'm like, well, that's just completely unreasonable. I need to figure, I need to do this in a smart way. So, um, and it wasn't, I mean, the camera, getting a lighter camera cut down, you know, that was removing four pounds, which backpackers spent, you know, they, they search all over to remove four pounds from their pack. So, um, so what did you, what did you move on to then for lightweightness? After so the I, I started, I started with the Intrepid, yep. um, which I went through, I had, I had an Intrepid camera. And I, I really do love what they've done. It's a great um, budget camera. I mean, it's, it's come on it's a lot, hasn't it? The Mark IV, Mark whatever they're up to now on the yeah, yeah. yeah. And even still, uh, yeah. And I, I realized there was still, it's not the quickest camera to use. It is a great, you can do anything with it. It's a 4x5. You can do anything you can do with a 4x5 with it. You know, you can take perfectly sharp images. Um, but it's not the quickest camera to operate. So I, since I do this for a living, I decided it was worth a little bit, something a little nicer. And I got a Chamonix, which has mm-hmm. been a great camera. So that kind of half carbon fiber, half wood Chamonix. Um, and it's only about six ounces heavier than uh, Intrepid and quite a bit. It's, it's quite a lovely rigid camera. So that has been, I've had that two years now and I've been backpacking and, and that's my everything camera. I don't really use the Toyo. I just use that um, Chamonix for everything because it's, precise enough for all the any sort of prairie architectural work i might do and light enough for the mountains so it's a i've gotten the all the photography stuff is down to somewhere around 15 to 20 pounds now including a tripod so So you're you're presumably using some carbon fiber yeah and it's a pretty short tripod too um you know it's only like chest level or so Mm-hmm. and so it's pretty light you don't really i mean four by fives aren't all that heavy so you don't need these giant you know monster tripods in all reality you know a, a chamonix is only a three pounds or so with a small lens on it and so you just don't need this huge 
tripod in the backcountry at all. You don't have mirror slap to worry about. So, uh, and then I just usually bring two lenses where I used to bring four. And then I bring only five film holders. And then I bring spare boxes and a changing bag with me. So I have, so I can bring my you know, 40 or 50 sheets of film on a trip. Now, and I was just going to say that you've, you've said something that's, that, that's, in, very, well, you said a few things that are interesting, but the one one thing that's uh, uh, you've you've said there, and, and you you prize it with um, your, your your Chamonix, is uh, speed and yeah. speed mm-hmm. of use, and that's that's not something that I don't think we've ever had anybody talk about being able to use <laughs> a large format camera quickly uh, on the right. Show. <laughs> I'm just interested if we can just go a little bit more into that. I mean, where where, where you're coming from with that? Right. I, you know, mountain light changes quickly. Prairie, every light, all light changes quite quickly. There's probably been many times you've set up your 4x5 in brilliant light, only to watch things totally fall apart while you're fiddling with something on the camera. That's um, pretty common. I mean, it happens no matter what 4x5 you're using. You're going to, by the time you pull it out of the bag, you're like, yep, yep, that's gone. That's That rainbow didn't happen anymore. So um, there really is like the Toyo just, it just pops right open. I mean, it just, and you, you push the button, pop it open, slide the board out and you're in less than five seconds, you're ready to slap a lens on there and you can be composing an image quickly. Um, and the Chamonix is, um, you know, it's just got nice threaded holes for that lens board. Um, the it's, it's designed very similar to the Intrepid, but everything just kind of is a little tighter and quicker. So that's why it works well. But really, I, I've gotten fairly quick. There's been, I, I can probably, depending on the type of situation, if you have to use weird movements, it takes longer. But a straightforward shot, sometimes I can be ready in a couple of minutes, you know, mm-hmm. just ready to, ready to fire off. And sometimes you need that in the light. So I, well, I, I would like think be, for most of, most of your, the sort of work you're doing, Alex, is a bit of front tilt and you're good to go. <laughs> I would think. Yeah, and it's really pretty easy, especially, you know, even I thought the Toyo was easy with base tilt. I find the axis tilt to be easy as well. It's in, you end up just realizing with a, you know, a, a mildly wide lens, it's not that much tilt. You just kind of feel it's that little tilt of the lens and you're good to go. And I always just set my camera up perfectly level on the tripod and I'm using front rise or fall to look up or down. Yeah. Um, which works really well because my the tripod head is panning. So if I'm not pointed precisely, I just spin the tripod head a little bit without loosening the whole thing up, and the camera stays level. I don't have a crooked composition at all. And I mean, so you know, finding the composition is a brilliant quick thing. The Chamonix also has a delightfully bright ground glass, which also helps speed things up. So what are the to be- what are the two lenses that you're hitting upon these days? I'm going to guess a bit of an educated guess. One of them will be a two ten. I. Not not when backpacking. Oh, not when uh, backpacking. Okay. Yeah, that is my favorite prairie lens now. Though. Oh, is so it? Is, right. Yeah, almost all of the <laughs> recent work you've been seeing me shoot on the prairie, like 80% of it's probably with the 210. Uh-huh. So the one thing with the mountains is I need a wide because you, you especially if it's a valley you don't know, you never know are the peaks going to be towering two or 3,000 feet over your head and how close are you really going to be? You can't feel till you get your feet on the ground. So I always bring the 75. So... Um, but you can crop if you need to. It's a pretty wide lens, but uh, the Grand Dragon, if you will, no. Uh, <laughs> Grand Dragon. Grand Dragon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I bring um, that, and then I bring a one thirty-five, which is good. One thirty-five is pretty um, versatile in the mountains. You can do a little more of an intimate. You could do this scene where you have a big looming mountain range. I mean, 
when you're in these high Colorado or Wyoming Western mountains, I mean, they really are quite dramatic. So a 135 can make them look quite close and quite large in the frame if you're in these if you're in these deep valleys. And sometimes a 135 is too long in all reality. So, but what I love about the 135 is if you decide you want to do some intimate work, uh, you can really. It's a great and all-purpose intimate lens. You can even rack it out. Your, you can rack out your bellows and do ma- you know almost macro work with it if you want to do some forest floor stuff or corn lily plant detail. I use that 135 all the time for that stuff. Um, I, I've been looking at 135 millimeter lenses because I, I was using my one first lens I got was a 150, and then mm-hmm. I got a 90, and then a 210. Yeah, that's a pretty typical. That's the uh, that's, pretty that's typical. What most people would go for, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. In that order, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I, I was at shoot, shooting in the fens recently, and there were the ninety was too wide from the position I was at, mm-hmm. uh, and the composition I'd chosen. You know, the perspective was right, and uh, and I just wanted to be a bit wider, and I couldn't really move back. But then you see, once you change your camera position, you're changing perspective anyway. So this, yeah. this, and then so I started thinking about the one three five lens, and then I thought, well, how far do I take this? And and then I was listening to either listening to something you'd said, Alex, or maybe it was something you'd written about the choice of lenses in large format photography, and maybe it's not quite so straightforward. Uh, you, you know, it's not really a straightforward thing choosing lenses and composition. So maybe you want yeah. to talk a little bit about that. Lens choice. Yeah, and the one, the one thirty five for me was probably if I, I mean I've, I've had that lens for I've pretty much had all my lenses for ten years or more. So, um, what did the, you go for with the one three five? By the way, because I am in the market. It's Fuji, whatever the one that's cheap. Is it the so, five six? Yeah, the five six, and yeah, um, yeah, it's like, they're not I, too I, expensive, are they? No, and back when I got it, it was probably only two hundred and change for an incredibly clean one. Yeah, um, they're rather affordable. Maybe they're a little more now, but. Uh, and it's the small lens. It's tiny, you know, 52 millimeter threads. So it's, it's compact and never takes up too much space. So that's why that's another reason I bring it backpacking is it's, I mean, no reason not to, it adds half a pound to my bag and it's a lot of extra options for me. The reason I chose that was probably because I was used to the crown graphic that I had that came with a 127. So mm-hmm. I bet I, I, in, I'm just trying to go back in my memory. I think that's the reason I went with the 135. Well, that's another interesting lens choice. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Alex. That's another interesting lens choice, isn't it? Because that's bang in the middle of that sort of ninety to one fifty. Yeah. Yeah, and the one twenty seven, which is it came with that crown graphic, and that was a. I mean, it's one of those incredibly old lenses, um, and it had no movement capability. So I wanted. Mm. I liked the focal length. I was used to it, so I figured I'd get a lens that was close that could do a little more movements. So, and it worked out pretty well. I've never had a one fifty. I feel like I. Uh, that 135 works so well for me. I don't know why. It's just that nice because I have a I have 75, 90, 135, 210, and then just last year I bought my first lens in 10 years and I added a 300. Um, you, yeah, I've got a 300, but I can't use it much. <laughs> yeah, yeah so they're interesting. I use it on the prairie occasionally. It's a it's an interesting lens choice. So I'm surprised that you don't use your 210 out in the landscape because I mean I, I I love it for the probably for the same reasons you do it adds that bit of compression doesn't it and mm-hmm. and sometimes sometimes i just find i'm overwhelmed by the vastness of a landscape and that slightly tighter view is um helps me focus a, a bit more so and that, you don't you don't that's you're more, that of a wide more guy, aren't you? 
Not necessarily. I've really, well, I'd say I went in the, in the, in the last few years, I've shifted from wide to normal ish not to, and so that 135 has seen a lot more use. I think right. what it is, is that our mountains have so much vertical aspect to them that a 210 just mostly doesn't work well. I see. Yeah. So you, you can't, you can, you can do like adjust a mountain scene, but it's hard to get mountain with foreground with a 210 and in our, they're just too tall. So I don't, that's I don't why have to worry about such thing. as long as I can get a telegraph pole in, I'm that's all I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I love it. Um, the compression I get when I'm shooting my prairie subjects, I really love that 210. You get the compression and the isolation together, and it's quite impressive how that works. But uh, in the mountains, you kind of get the same effect with a 135. It's almost even though it's a slightly wide lens, it uh, almost seems to have compression compared to a 75 as you're in these dramatic tall mountains i mean you can really fill a frame with just mountains on a 135 in some of these valleys yeah. i'm just i'm just on your instagram feed at this mm-hmm. moment and there's uh, there's one thing that uh, that jumps out um with you being a large format photographer and that's everything that i've actually seen on on your feed i don't know how far how far back it goes uh, but there's there's certainly one thing in common and it's all color and that's yes. something that we i'm not sure andrew is 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 alex the third photographer to be on this show that shoots color well in large format um, at least certainly ben horn and um alan brock uh, alan brock yeah yeah um, so and the, but that's the thing it's yeah there may well have been somebody else that, that does that does it but color and large format is a is something that's pretty rare it seems um and um and it, it's it's great to see it uh because yeah we we do live in this 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 world of black and white and collodion and so on and then every now and again something comes out and color and it whacks you around the face Right, yeah. and I'm I'm just 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 because I mean you've you've said it yourself you know you don't really do that much that much black and white. Uh, and it's probably and been two years since I've loaded a holder with black and white. That's it. I so, kind of yeah. So color color speaks to you. And, it does uh, absolutely. And I'd, I'd I'd be just in, interested in in what your 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 take is on the uh, on on color white and why you chose it. Right. It, it probably goes into this, some of the stuff that inspired me to get into photography from, from the first place. You know, walk into a gallery, see a big five foot print of, you know, amazing color and just your jaw drops. It's just amazing to look at. So it's kind of that more like traditional, just beautiful landscape scenery that got me into color. So I've been working with a little softer colors these days. I think I'm kind of, I think a lot of us progress into softer color palettes over the years sometimes, but I still really do see the color in the landscape. I really enjoy that glow you get before twilight, um, before sunrise, you know, that it, you know, right at sunrise is almost not, I don't even shoot that very often. I'm shooting before sunrise or after sunset. I just love that soft color in the sky. It does so much to the landscape to me that I, I don't see in a black and white image personally. Um, Cause black and white is all much more about golden hour or even midday or moody light. And there's all, sorts of different things you're looking for with black and white, I feel like, and I definitely see color. And at some point about two years ago, I just realized I've been carrying around two film holders with Delta 100 all the time. And I was never using it. I'm like, why am I carrying these two film holders? I think the last time I probably shot a sheet of black and white was sometime around noon in death Valley. And, you know, it worked well for that. And then I 
probably developed it like six months later and I was like, hmm, yeah, just color speaks to me for sure. It's and it's, it's it's just just great to see them. I'm I'm just curious now uh, because there aren't that many color films available on the market now. So what what film do you stick with one color film or you've got a range of films that you use? There is a range actually, and I do both slide and negative. So I probably I used to shoot I would say three quarters slide twenty and and one quarter negative, and it's probably the other way around now. I've really been enjoying the softer color palette of films like Portra and even Ektar, depending on how you expose it. Ektar can be pretty colorful stuff, too, especially if you underexpose a negative. You can get into pretty wild color. Um, But I tend to kind of overexpose them a little bit. I really abuse the highlights on my negative film. And then sometimes intimate scenes work so much better on slides. I feel like if you're trying to shoot this close up of a you know fall color you know aspen against a boulder or something like that i negatives get a little hard on the delicacies there so that's when i reach for something like velvia or provia um i've been playing with a new kodak e100 which is an interesting choice it is absolutely nothing like the kodak slides it's um completely different i mean it's instead of I mean, it's nothing like the Fuji slides. Uh, Fuji slides are very magenta or blue, cool, or these red tones. And the Kodak one is very immediately, you'll throw it on a light table and you see how green it is compared to a Fuji. You could shoot the same scene on E100 and Velvia and you'll see the Kodak slide looks quite green. It's a more neutral color. It's almost like the negative of slides. It has a little more highlight range and a kind of softer color palette. So it's interesting in between film. But I, I do have this range of films and... When I'm backpacking, I tend to bring just one because I'm trying to minimize uh, weight. So I'm still going back and forth between Portra or Ektar for my one film for backpacking. And so, do you do you develop yourself? Yeah, yeah. I have a. I used to do it by hand in um, like a, a hand tank thing with a C41. I was for some reason for a long time I was scared to do E6, and I don't know why. It's actually easier than C41, and. Uh, but then I, my lab stopped doing E6, and I said, well, I'm going to – I just – someone in town had a Jobo they gave to me. So I got I started using a Jobo processor, one of those kind of medium autom- – the one he gave me was fully automated. That one um, took a crap on me a few years ago, and I got a little more less automated one. I had to buy that one, unfortunately. Uh, but another guy in town – I can't believe this small town has so many Jobos laying around in people's basements. But <laughs> – I, I kind of wonder how many are out there just in people's basements not getting used. So, uh, but no, they're actually, that's it, pretty easy to develop film in that. So it's, I can do 10 sheets at a time, usually 20 sheets in a, in a session. I do two drums so I can develop quite a bit. It, it, it's certainly going to keep your developing costs down, isn't it? Because, I mean, it'd be yeah, really I, I'd say I'm, otherwise. Per, yeah, I'm pretty close to 50 cents a sheet for developing, depending on if I use my chemicals in a reason, because the chemicals only last so long once you crack them open but uh, if I have enough to develop, it's really only fifty cents a sheet, which is a lot better than labs charging four or five dollars a sheet. So I've um, I've developed probably about a dozen rolls of slide film this year, or no, back end of last year. And because I'm shooting so little now, I'm, I'm just sending the odd one out to the lab. But I, I, yeah, and it's been the E100. I was just shooting family events mainly for at the end of the year, those boring slideshows, you know, because I'm shooting, not shooting to scan it, I'm shooting to project it. Oh, yeah, that's kind so, of fun. Uh, so I'm using the E100. But I was, do you think you'll use that as, will it form part of what you do? Because, you know, I'm staring at this, what looks like a bit of silver birch trunk on some 
uh, autumn fall leaves shot with provia by the looks of it mm-hmm. um and that's just lovely you know and and yeah you know that's I'm, a, I'm, how I'm would certain. that look in you know with with e100 or what where would you use e100 do you think at this stage my first use of e100 was because it didn't come out on 4i5 until you know this winter that's right yes yeah, so it just like come December out or something so yeah. i got a few boxes and i think they showed up in january and i went to the redwoods in february and it okay. worked really well in the redwoods that green i would probably consider using it on green forests it seems to do pretty well in fog and it does seem to have maybe, I mean, I, I haven't measured by any means, but it seems to have one more stop of highlight dynamic range. It seems to be able to reach a little deeper in. So I, but there's some scenes, I don't know, because at some point you don't really need to add another film to your bag just to add another film to your bag. It mm-hmm. kind of makes things more complicated. So I, it's tough. I still have four more boxes. I want to develop my own idea on the film before I, by the time I finish those boxes to decide if I want to buy more. It's also, it's the most expensive slide film by far. And you know, $6 a sheet instead of the normal four fifty or so. Um, and so I don't know if I don't really need it, then I don't know if I'll keep shooting it or not. So, cause I haven't found like, there's this scene where you would have to shoot E 100 for. So at that point, it's like maybe just stick with the films I already know, but I really enjoy that. They're adding a new film too. So it's kind yeah. of, you, you want to, you want to support them and keep that going. And it is unique. It definitely is a much more neutral color tone. So it's still a tough choice. Simon, didn't you have a question about slide film for our guest? Um, well, it's it's a slide film stroke color in general, really. And uh, and before I ask it, I'll just, just let our listeners know that I did actually. I'm not just dropping this question uh, on on Alex. Um, and and a few weeks ago. Um, we had uh, Clyde Butcher on the show, and uh, and and it was a, a great, great listen. And and and, Al, um, and Clyde is somebody that has some pretty strong opinions on things, and and that was it was it was very interesting what he had to say about uh, color versus black and white. Because he started off in color, and he, he ultimately moved to black and white for largely for artistic reasons. And um, and he would certainly describe uh, black and white as art. Um, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing, but uh, say black and white as art and color as reality. Some that, he said, "Color was, color is decor." I believe is what he said. Yeah, and and black and said, yeah, yeah, even even more yeah. disparaging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was and, more direct. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely pussyfooting around the edges there. And um, so I'm I'm just wondering what what because I know that you've listened to that show. And uh, and I'm just wondering what you, what your uh, well I guess I'm I'm giving uh, color photographers a, a right of reply um, and a and a, a, a pro color uh, viewpoint. So I'm just wondering what your take is on uh, on that subject. Right, and that's an interesting one because I do understand he was blunt with what he said, but I absolutely understand his viewpoint, and he's definitely a black and white guy as far as you know. He's really focused on that, and he is going for the where there's a, so much interpretation that can be done in the negative, in the print, I mean, from the negative. And, you know, he really wants to the negative, the print to speak as his art form. So he's really always kind of going, he's venturing quite far from reality intentionally in his printing process. And that's something, as he said, you can't really do with color. If you go wild with the colors, you end up with something that looks like the HDR we used to see 10 years ago all the time. So 
And you don't really want that. So you want color is a little more of a reality thing, though. We I think with color, we're looking for the best real light. I think the photographers have a little more in the field challenge with color Hmm. where I think a a black and white photographer may have a little more in the dark room and in the vision challenge of it. Uh, I think I think color people really need to get it right in the field. We have to be in these areas during that five minutes or less of spectacular light, or we're going to be end up making somewhat mediocre images quite often. So is there's there's more of this um, venture into, the, I guess the the best reality, the almost impossible reality we're trying to capture on color film. I so. think that's, a, that's a wonderful diplomatic uh, answer, but actually, <laughs> you know, it's um, it, it it sets it in it sets the discussion in context a little bit because I think you're right. I think with black and white, I mean, all photography is about light. Without light, we're finished. But you know, I can go in the dark room and if if I, if I'm not liking the way the light is on a path in a scene that, that that I wanted really to be a bit brighter, I'd really love the light to fall on it. Alex, I'll take a very dilute darkroom bleach on a piece of cotton wool and I'll rub it up and down there, and yeah. suddenly I'm injecting a bit of liquid sunshine. So you yeah, can yeah. you can do all that stuff, but you can't do that with your <laughs> Provia with your no. 160. Can and you? I guess you know you're you're looking at the of course. Uh, in the world of color, I'm not I'm not printing color in the darkroom either. I'm drum scanning. And then in theory, if I wanted to, I could do whatever I want in Photoshop. My goal is more realism. I find that, I mean, I, I enjoy the capturing real but almost unbelievable light. I'm trying to really get the best of color. But in theory, I could do the same thing in the uh, in Photoshop, I guess, with my film scans. But I... Uh, I think it's a little easier to get away with it on black and white. Like you said, if you added liquid sunshine to your print, it's a little less obvious that it was tainted than if I had done so in Photoshop. I yeah. think it's well, it, you yeah. can quite easily see when things have gone too far over the color color film. So you mentioned the the P word, the Photoshop word, and um, folks listening, if I think if you if you head to Alex's site and listen to his blog and listen to it, he's got a technical tutorials as well. He's uh, very generous with his time um, when it comes to explaining his scanning techniques. And and you don't go into it in a load of detail here, Alex. I mean, people can go and spend $19 and buy buy your book. I'm sure some, some of that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but right. um, and I, I like sharing. I do enjoy helping people with this. But it's some actually- guidelines for folks scanning. I mean, I, I, I've avoided four or five color shooting because i don't know what to do with it you know Mm -hmm. i'm thinking well should i buy should i try and buy an epson v 700 or maybe now i can buy a pixelator but then i the new thing that's just been launched to help you scan digitize color color it's like film holders you can yeah it's a film holder that you have a light behind it and then but then i've got nothing to photograph with because i don't i've never had a digital camera so i've shied away from the whole thing and also photoshop just i i struggle with it really and so i some very broad, very broad tips, you know, that I know yeah. people can go and find on your blog, but so don't spend an hour on it, but just some broad of tips of scanning in color. So, yeah, one thing, I mean, that's the thing with slides and also Clyde Butcher said this with slides, like what you get, I mean, what you, you see the slide and you put it on a light table and you're like, well, that's what the photo is. I mean, there's not much you can do with a slide. You can choose a different film type. You could choose Velvia if you wanted the color, colors to be a little more intense. You can choose Provia if you wanted that cool tone. You could have put a warming filter on it. But when you get when you see a slide 
you know you're going to put it in your scanner and it, you want it to look like the slide. The slides look pretty awesome unless you didn't expose it well or the sky yeah. was too bright. You I mean you, you can get in trouble quickly with slides. But scanning-wise, incredibly easy. You put it in the scanner, pretty much comes out looking like the slide did. Uh, negatives are the big challenge. And this is where one of my most common questions I get through email, Instagram, whatever, is people say, do you edit your film scans? And um, and I don't know if there's some sort of purist thing going on in their minds or whatever, but mm. I, I have a very strong argument that there is no such thing as an unedited negative film scan. Uh-huh. It is absolutely doesn't exist because unless you're just looking at that orange, disgusting orange brown blob, then yes, that's an unedited next um, film scan. But if you put that negative into Epson or into Silverfast or whatever software you use, when it goes to invert it, that is edited. It has done something to it. There is no straight up inversion of a negative film. I mean, when you would print it in the dark room, you would play with the color head. You would make your print look proper. So your everyone has always been editing their negative film and there's no real way around that. So that's one of my biggest things I want people to like get rid of thinking that whenever they just put it in a scanner, it's not edited. So that way you can learn that you want to make it look like what you thought you saw. So you need to remember your reality when you're there a little bit. And that really helps to also not wait five years to develop and scan your film after you shot it. Uh, but that's so can, kind I, of, can I just stop you there? Cause that's a yeah. really interesting point because I think that's one of my cut challenges because I keep cut and I'm sure a lot of folks do, they'll bag up their color, uh, film until they've got enough to go and buy a kit and then i'm scanning these things and i think well i'm not actually sure what it was supposed to look like because i can't remember yes is that supposed to be yellow or white or is it kind of a bright white or an (laughs) off-white right and that's that's a particular challenge because scanner software has no idea what sunsets look like so if you were shooting some vibrant red magenta crazy sunset the scanner software says where's the white point and it's trying to make something white in there. So it'll turn your sunset green and your sky blue and your, you know, you don't, it's trying to, it really doesn't know what it's looking for. And the same thing is even my manual inversion process that I outlay in my blog, you have to kind of use your memory a bit there. And I, I have tried, I've spoken with people. I've tried so many ways. There is just no direct inversion. So that's why some memory. So maybe if you took in a cell phone photo alongside mm. of it, that may help you. Uh, but yes, I mean, it makes sense to bag your film and, and until you have enough to do a kit because the kits only last so long once you crack them and mix them up. So you don't want you sometimes some people have to wait a year or so before they develop their film. And that, that's a challenge with negatives. That's with slides. It's going to look the same. You know what it is. But so there's a struggle there. Just on the um, digitizing um, negatives, there's uh, there's a. a uh, it's a plugin for Lightroom uh, called Le- Negative Lab Pro, mm-hmm. and the idea is that I mean you can do this with a with a regular scanner if it uh, outputs into uh, yeah. a, a, a RAW or a TIFF file, and then you can run it through the plugin. Um, but the way that the plugin works, or rather how you can make the plugin works, is that you'll actually take a um, a reading off the unexposed area of the mm-hmm. film. And then, based upon what it sees as being the unexposed area of the film, it then has a pretty damn good stab at what the yes. white balance actually is, using that as a baseline. Yeah, and that's my starting point for an inversion as well. In Photoshop, it's really easy to use the eyedropper tool. I select the border of my film, and then I sub- I subtract that color with a layer. I so I subtract the border 
from the film. And now you have um, that orange mask is now removed yeah. from the film. Oh, so now you, now, now you see, sorry, you've already lost me. The, now I'm aware of, I only have a very basic form of Photoshop called Photoshop Elements 14 or Elephants mm-hmm. 14, as other people Elephant. might call it. <laughs> and, and I see the word layers there. And I, and I, I kind of get the idea that you can, you know, you can have a layer and you can, because I saw you doing it. You were playing with um, mm-hmm. sh- cl- making sure your shadows weren't clipped in the different channels and the highlights weren't clipped. And you had that in a layer. You'd opened a layer to do that. And does yeah, that allow you to work on the image while leaving the original to one side? Is that effectively? Yeah, right? yeah. So you haven't messed with the actual image because you never really want to mess with your original image. Oh, that's what I did. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so you add a layer. You can add layers that are fill layers. You can add adjustment layers. But the, yeah. so I use a I use a layer. Um, I subtract that um, film base with a fill layer, and then you can change the blend mode to subtract. So oh, yeah. I essentially, come, I need to come to Colorado and sit with you, and you need to show me. <laughs> and I actually do in one of the YouTube videos. It's just manual inversion of color negative film. Okay. I actually show, and I think. Your elephant's version should have similar stuff going on. I'm not quite. Yeah, I've seen some words like layers and fill and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so you probably have. I mean, it's got the basic elements, if you will. So, um, yeah, but it's pretty. What Negative Lab Pro is doing, it's doing what I do a little more automated. Um, So I think that for someone who is shooting, my process would be rather annoying if you're shooting an entire roll of 35 millimeter film. you know, and I think negative lab pro is a little quicker for people that are bat shooting with four by five. I'm not, you know, I'm not scanning in hundreds of sheets all the time. So I, you just physically aren't. So if I have to spend an extra couple of minutes on the sheet, there's no, that's no problem to me. So. But in general terms, um, much the same as you would when you're starting to make a darkroom print, you're looking to capture, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, as much detail as you can in your, scan so you're yes. you're so, switching off as many auto this and auto that thing yeah and the scan should look like a digital raw file it should look yeah. bland it should look flat and it, it needs to have room for you to then bring it into photoshop and bring back reality so you're, you're wanting i mean that that is kind of the reality of color negative film is that you're going to be editing it and i think what um i've seen a lot of people get into film with this idea that i no longer have to edit my photos um, and I, I don't know if that, cause I mean, film has, film has always been edited in the dark room. It's always been edited in one way or another. Sure. So, I mean, very few people would just straight up make a print of exactly what their negative was with no adjustments at all. I mean, you're always adding, even with black and white, you're probably always adding some sort of filter or something than your darkroom print. Mm-hmm. So a contrast grade, et cetera. So yeah, with color, you're going to be doing something. So, and some people think that if you just throw it into the Epson scan software, they think that. Uh, there was no edit made because the software did it, but it, the software was still making non-artistic computerized choices and it was editing the photo without your approval, essentially. Well, it's all, it's also interesting. There's a, in, uh, in 35 mmc.com, uh, uh, today, um, there's a review of another, uh, a new program, a new, another pl- uh, plugin, um, and actually negative lab pro pro works with Lightroom. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Andrew, you'll be a little bit happier in Lightroom than you probably are with Photoshop because you don't have to bother with layers and things. But we'll we'll have a chat about that offline. Sometime. Well, what, what, what I need to get a new laptop first because yes. you know my problems. I have a work laptop yes. that I can't do anything with, so let me, I need to get rid of that and get my own bit of equipment. Then I might get more excited about scanning and exactly. Lightroom and stuff. You know, we'll, we'll we'll have a good chat about that. 
thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so th so that's uh, Negative Lab works in the Negative Lab Pro works in Lightroom. But there's a, a new um, uh, plugin on the block uh, called uh, Grain to Pixel, and oh, yeah. and that works with Photoshop, I believe, rather than with Lightroom. And again, it's a plugin and. Um, it's it's really interesting this uh, the, this article as I say it's in 35mnc.com and the day is 31st of July so uh, whenever you're listening to this you head back to the 31st of July 2020 you should be able to find um, this this review and it's it's really interesting because uh, a chap has done a head-to-head -head, um, of, of digitizing uh, color negative film uh, using grain to pixel and negative lab pro and and it just again it just highlights exactly what you've just been saying there about there's no such thing as an unedited photograph uh, yeah because he's got some photographs here that and you can the you can sweep them from one side one side to the other so you can see um in real time if you like the difference between one program and another and they're quite radically different and it's just yeah, exactly and it's the same, same image it's the same yeah so uh so yeah and um, the good the good news for 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 people as well that um whichever one you go for i mean they both do good results i actually have negative lab pro and i love it and uh i actually use it a lot for black and white um because scanning the black and white uh, negative the way that it comes out i'm it's virtually exactly how I want it. I hardly have to do anything to it. Um, but it's it's interesting to see how you can get these different effects. But this this new one, uh, the grain to, grain to pixel, uh, that's all one word, and it uses the number two if you want to uh, go and find it. Um, interesting. Is it's free, uh, which is uh, extraordinary. Um, there's going to be a pro version that's going to have some other kind of uh, bells and whistles in it. But the actual the, the free version is largely comparable to the uh, paid options that are actually out there so that might be something that uh, people might want to check out if they're using um, a scanner or as i do i use a a, a, um, a camera uh, to yeah. uh, backlight the uh, uh, well i have a backlit negative and then i'll take a photograph or, or a slide so uh, a couple of interesting options there that's interesting because i i um i like that there's a, a free option there and be, I'm, I'll probably look into that because I always am curious to see what other processes people have come for inverting negatives because Negative Lab Pro, he's definitely, the guy who's written it is obviously pretty good at writing software and he's, I'm sure at some point you choose the film base or the plugin does itself possibly, but it's got to have some, he's got to have written some pretty good code. My version is a fully manual process that I outline and it you know it takes a little longer, but it is fun because then people get to see essentially what negative lab pro is doing through a more automated process. And I'd be kind of curious what this grain to pixel um, has accomplished as well. So, cause I, I would like people to be able to get the most out of their film without having to pay a bunch of money to get it figured out too. Cause it, it's kind of fun to learn what is happening in the inversion process. I've I've not I've not seen what you do with yours, but I'm I'm, I'm very interested to, to to follow that follow that one through. And uh, as you say, it's it's as you say, it's just find out why something is actually doing something rather than pressing the button and and having a great output. It's 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 good to actually just do these things for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think we get a little better understanding of what's going on there too. So, but again, if you're doing you know, if you're shooting 36 shots in a roll and you, you want to invert a bunch of it, Negative Lab Pro is probably well worth the, I think it's 80 bucks or something or whatever it costs for it. It's probably well worth it. So. I'll talk to you next year, Simon, when I've got some new equipment on what <laughs> software to buy. Because I've, 
you know, I love the darkroom, uh, but sometimes I want to do stuff, you know, um, on the computer. Not very often, but, you know, I do, and I do get a bit frustrated, particularly with color. And I think it's partly my, uh, the, uh, you know, the equipment I'm using isn't allowing me to do a lot of stuff because I can't add anything to it because it's all controlled by work, you know. And I've only got a very basic form of Photoshop, which I still should be able to use, I guess, but I, just yeah. my natural home is in the darkroom. Pa- Alex, can I just ask you about your panoramic images? Simon, have you, have yeah. you finished on your scanning? Yeah, question? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, panora- panoramas uh, are something I love shooting. I shoot 6x17 on That's the back of my format, toy. That's fun format, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. On the back yeah. of my toy, I have one of those Chinese backs, you know, Dei Yi. Dei Yi, da, da, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever, however you pronounce it. <laughs> Let's not get <laughs> into the pronunciation issues. Um, <laughs> and then with that one, uh, you can put some masks in and shoot some smaller aspect ratios quite yeah. odd ones really I've two or three different ones but anyway i tend to leave it on six by 17 because why wouldn't i right. and I, I can't print i can only print in my four five in larger six by 12 by 12 so sometimes yeah. i crop it and make a print but more often than not i'm shooting it to scan really which is another reason why i need to up my game with scanning because you've got some just awesome scans i don't think you're using a 617 back though i was most you're using some clever witchcraft involving stitching things together, aren't you? Or do you have a uh, not for the most part? I, the only stitching I had done was with some storm images because I was, yeah, that's I was looking at that storm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, see, I'd have been in the car heading the other direction. There's, there's this shot, <laughs> they're pretty cool to look at, they're they're amazing to really be yeah. in front of those. Yeah. People <laughs> listening, it or, or later, stop, stop, pause the podcast and go and look at the, the picture from October the 7th. 2019 high prairie and um i I think you stood there and it got a bit closer i think from what you were saying by the oh the tornado there yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) Mm. um i mean yeah trying to set up a four by five in front of a tornado is a unreasonable venture so i was (laughs) using uh i was using a pentax six by seven and pretty much doing what digital people do and just you know snapping Uh, snapping four shots and um i was i was surprised how well they merged together i figured there would have been some mild inconsistencies that would have made lines or something visible but no they they merged flawlessly and and i just used the photo merge that you would use if you're stitching digital images but uh that's the only time i've done that for the most part Almost all of my panoramas are crops from four by five. And um, for a little bit, uh, for a couple of years, I was using a six by 17 camera, one of those Fuji, you know, fixed lens six by 17s, which Chen was how do one as well. Don't they? A six seventeen dedicated I, six seventeen. Oh yeah. They make one with bellows and all that too. Yeah, this was just, yeah. and, and you can change the lenses on it. This yep. was just one of those fixed lens, the Fuji G six seventeen. Yep. Um, Steve I mean, Tenders it's really, got one it's of really cool. Yeah, it's just a large format lens on a on a roll film back is all yep. it really is with a you know little focus ring on it, and um, that's a quick camera to use. It's really quick. You can you can kind of shoot things that are happening, you know, they're they're changing quite rapidly. Um, but my was really limited. I actually found that six by seventeen when it came to selling prints to customers was really not a great format. So that's when I went pretty much back to shooting four by five sheets and cropping to pano. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of customers, they would look at a 6x17 print and they say, so it you know, comes up to 20 by 60 inches. And they'd be like, well, can I get it 30 by 60 inches? You know, And I'm like, no, you can't. So um, what I love when I shoot a 4x5 sheet is I can always just give them a little bit more of the Aspen Forest, you know, top and bottom. So if yeah. someone wants a 30 by 60, 
it looks great. So, and I actually really? quite like when I crop four by five, I mostly crop it. Sometimes I do one to three, but I mostly do two by five, exactly half the sheet. It's a really nice aspect ratio in a large print. It looks great in people's homes. So that's why that has worked so well. And then, so it comes out to like a 24 by 60 inch print is the most common size oh. I sell. And, um, People quite often say, can I get a 28 or a 30 by 60? Because they want a little more height, and it's no problem at all. I just Yeah, I that, make, full... that makes all sorts of sense. Of course, it does for your, you know, the way for your workflow. In fact, yeah. I just found one that you might want to crop. <laughs> <laughs> March, March the 8th. It looks wonderful as it is, but I think March the 18th, you posted a picture, uh, I don't know what it's called, along the coast a few weeks back. Each day I would shoot the redwoods, then head down oh, to the yeah. water to watch the sunset. So you've got all these rocks in the foreground, classic composition, and the rocks are converging to a point of some kind of sort of rock in the sea stack. Yeah. So if you cut that, if you cut that in half, that would make a nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's the great thing about, and I actually have really learned general with four by five, and and when it comes to printing stuff, I've really learned to be flexible with the compositions. I mean. I don't mm. fill, I don't fill the frame to the edges with stuff. Yes, it's nice. I, I mean, I use leading lines, but I, I leave a lot. Almost all of my images could be cropped to square. They could be cropped to a panor- A lot of them could be cropped to panorama that doesn't work so well with mountain, you know, reflections that doesn't work well. But uh, a lot of them, I like to keep them flexible because not everyone wants a four by five ratio print. So That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and that's something that I've learned. And, and first off, I started. I mean, I think it's natural when you start shooting four by five. Is you put everything, fill the frame, everything's to the edges, and then I mean, with four by five in general, the film holders never quite go in the same spot. I had like important things being cropped off by the border of the film, and yeah. you know, and like I, I just learned to like give. So I never, you know, the ground glass has that grid on it, and I never put anything important within that outer centimeter. Right. So the, yeah, nothing, nothing ever important goes in that, that outer grid line. So I, and then I just kind of have given more, you'll, you'll notice a lot of my compositions are center heavy and um, it's not necessary just for the, I, I think they, I think it looks good as well. It's a very, you know, bring your eye into the piece, but yeah. printing flexibility was definitely is a thought as well. I love I'd rather pictures, sh- I love the pictures you take out in the prairies and the mountains are very dramatic, but I think I'm drawn to this flatness because that's where I live, you know? And yeah. <laughs> You stumble across odd buildings, you know, or odd trees or odd mm-hmm. things that can be isolated. And uh, yeah, anything really stands out on the prairie, and it's about the sky, the one object, and the prairie interacting together. Just... And there's so many stories here as well, aren't there? I don't know if you ever look into them. There's a picture I'm looking at now. You posted on. I don't expect you to remember it. February the seventh, two thousand and nineteen. It's an old homestead, mm-hmm. beaten down old shack with a tree in front of it. Yeah, you know, bang in the middle of the picture, pretty much. Um, lots of grey green tones. Portra 160, you see. So, um, oh yeah, soft perfect. color. I mean, that that was yeah. one of those wild sunsets. I mean, it was it was our we are. Um, I like to call it uh, sunset season. We get here, and it kind of spans mostly December through February or so, and we get these clouds that form. Um, we call it it's a mountain wave cloud. So, because the mountains are 40 miles to my west, there's this unique airflow that happens in the winter. And it makes this wave cloud that expands about 50 to 100 miles out on the prairie. And it makes these amazing sunrises and sunsets. It's this cloud with a gap of light on both sides that just hovers there. And you'll see these these sunsets that just light up the sky. And also sunrises are almost usually better, too. And Portra 160 toned it down because that image doesn't have overpowering colors. It's got 
if it's still colorful, but it's not, you know, if it was Velvia, that would have been just gone, you know, beyond all reasonable color. Yeah, so I think Portrait 160 is a wonderful choice, but uh, th- these pictures just tell, to me, I look at them and think, well, who lived Who lived yeah. there? You know, because this is just a house in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, really interesting to know, um, are... In general, you're seeing in the in the Great Plains of America, you're mostly seeing population bleeding out of the rural areas and moving into the towns and cities, which is pretty common globally, if you will. And it's just kind of leaving behind these ruins. I don't know, you know, why did that house? Why, why did they give up? What happened there? You know, why why are they why they get abandoned? And and eventually they get leveled, which is why I've been really in a rush to photograph some of that stuff. They sure. I've been seeing because Colorado is in a quite quite a, a boom phase. We really are our population's increasing rapidly. And uh, so we're seeing things will get, I never know when something will get, you know, bulldozed and turn into a strip mall. So I, uh, I just always am kind of out there looking for this stuff because it won't be there much longer. So in some parts of the country, it's more like a worry that the wind will blow it down someday, but here they're going to develop. It's likely that either um, natural gas and oil production will bulldoze it or uh, new housing. Or, or commercial lots or whatever. So it's we were in a rapid growth phase. So you'll start to see the city is just creeping out onto the prairie. So you'll have city end right where the cornfields start. And then five years later, that cornfield gets purchased by an apartment complex. And it just continues the process. So I never know when this stuff will disappear. So I've been really kind of running around and capturing it a lot lately. Yeah. Uh, my journey to the States, I, I was always struck by the amount of kind of old old abandoned stuff there was yeah. and mm-hmm. i always figured it was because there's so much land that they don't worry too much they just leave old stuff and just leave it and go and build somewhere else but yeah I there's definitely there's that as well yeah but mostly it's a story i'd imagine it's mostly um either the parents passed on and the kids didn't want the land because they'd moved to the city or they they took often the land gets um you know inherited by the children and they just sell it off to someone and ignore the stuff that's on it uh, I think that's pretty common too. So I don't quite know what all happens with the land, but there's a lot of it out here, as you as you notice on your drives across America. I'm sure. Yeah. So, what I love about your recent scans and posts to Instagram is that you're you're scanning, you're you're pretty much showing all the rebate of the film, and I can see what film you're using. Yeah, it's kind of really fun, good, isn't so. it? <laughs> yeah. Plus, it tells people that you're using film, unless you were using digital camera and just using one of these masks. I'm sure. But I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're doing it. I've just used my cell phone for all of these. And I, just, <laughs> I, I scanned in the film borders, and that's it. So, <laughs> but the Portra One Hundred and Sixty is just fabulous, isn't it? I, uh, more, yeah. The more I look at what you managed to achieve with Portra One Hundred and Sixty, well, you'll see. I've started using it for some landscapes as well, too. And I, I go back and forth. When I'm in the mountains, I'm in a little bit more of that traditional "give me the color" mode. So I kind of go back and forth between Ektar and Portra. But Ektar can Ektar is not necessarily over the top on color either. I'd say. Probably your biggest difference between the two films is that Portra seems to be missing some of that red channel. I mean, okay. it's it, it's it, I, it's hard to say because I mean, again, when you go to invert film, as you saw, two softwares had different interpretations of the same negative. So it's interesting, but Portra does seem to have some reduction in the red channel for the sake for the sake of skin tones well that, you know? yeah sure yeah. yeah that's what it was aimed for wasn't it but and so there's a I, few times you'll see a sunset where it's like goes from that magenta to orange and it kind of seemed to skip the red almost so then that that's right. like a port you'll see that in portrait sometimes where um you know it seems to be some funky reds there that aren't there so interesting 
Yeah. I, I just clicked on a, a picture. I thought, oh, that must be Ektar, and it turned out to be Portra. Exactly. So Rocky, hard... Rocky Mountains with red, red plants in the foreground and some. Oh, vibrant. those. Are... Yeah, that was, and I, I kind of underexposed that one by about oh, half a... stop or so, and that that's why they're vibrantly colored. They're incredible. So that can help you a lot. So that underexposing, I think you said earlier. You yeah, can, you can bring out those richness of color. So it's quite a versatile film, then, really, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Hmm. Well, more color. I, I'd love to. I I do love shooting color, but I get frustrated. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it. lovely to yeah. have um, talked to you about it and to be, uh, you know, to have my eyes open to what it can look like. Yeah. Wow. Bring bring some color to the podcast. That's <laughs> it. And I I think that's probably a. a, a just about the right time to start winding things down as well um and just to i just want to say something there just to add to what uh, uh andrew was just 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 saying there as you you know please listeners take some time uh, to to look through alex's uh instagram feed uh, because the more i look at it the more i see just how important the color actually mm. is in your photography yeah um it's uh, it's part of it for sure it's part of the compositions you know it's not it's not just like added. The color is a composition quite frequently. Yeah, it's not color for color's sake, is it? It's not exactly. a strate- strategically placed guy in a red hat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, we've seen play that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, um, Alex, thank, thank you for um, taking this time and uh, talk, talking talking through your uh, your photographic uh, experiences there. Yeah, my pleasure. So, uh, um, what I want to do now is uh well first thing to say is that we still have a couple of emails which we've um, had a, we've been sitting on for a while and we're going to sit on them again uh, so uh <laughs> until you get your next color guy or what <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but we're uh, yeah we're we're, we're gonna we will we will get to those emails so um fear, fear not we will get there um and uh this is a good time to say thank you uh to anybody that's um, helped us out on coffee.com um, and I'm not sure if anybody has since the last show um, but Tim B I can't remember if I said thank you last time uh, because it was around about the time when we recorded the show uh, but um, so I'm going to thank Tim B again uh, because um, I think it's well worth thanking Tim B so thank you Tim B uh, for helping us out there um, Is that B double E? Uh, no, no, just Tim and the letter oh. B Oh, the letter B. Oh, okay. yeah, not not Tim B. No, Tim no, B. No, not as in Buzzy B. No, no. <laughs> in fact, Tim, I don't think I'd have remembered because I'd have asked you the same question. So no, you, I, you definitely didn't thank Tim B last oh, time. Well, there you go. Well, thank thank <laughs> thank you, Tim B. <laughs> Tim B. Uh, um, and um, yeah, so uh, have you, Andrew? Have you got any shout outs? No. <laughs> okay, that's a short and sweet. I don't have any either. But um, Alex, have you got any shout outs? You want to say hello to anybody? Oh, we don't necessarily mean like your mum or just <laughs> well, you could do. But some some <laughs> yeah. interesting you met. I tell you what you did mention. You mentioned without saying his name, a Colorado photographer. Oh, well, that was, was um, that? that's actually John Fielder. And he's one of Colorado's kind of um, he's written so many books. He, John, he kind of got, sorry, what was his surname? John Fielder. Fielder. OK. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he's uh, probably got big in the 80s and he's kind of Colorado's well-known uh you know large format photographer so um yeah he's a, he does you know now he does he shoots digital now and has does workshops and stuff like that yeah, but he had a, him he, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly no point but no he, he got he definitely got me into large format it was kind of an early inspiration when i was you know around 20 years old or so 
though, because I, I think it was just someone had gotten me one of his books, you know, his basic intro to photography books when I was learning back when we used to use written material. And uh, still do. Right. Some people do. I think. Yeah. Photo. <laughs> yeah. My biggest and, source of inspiration. Yeah. And it was, you know, really good. So and but and I went to his gallery and met the guy once, you know, it was just kind of a fun thing. So but he, uh, you know, he had a nice gallery in Denver and was a lot of good work there. Okay, uh, I, yeah. I don't mean to suggest that might be your shout out, but anybody else? Oh, I mean, it's pretty. Was that was that not good enough for you, Andrew? Yeah, but I didn't want to be putting words in <laughs> our guest's mouth. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess I don't really have any shout outs. Okay, that's fine. Brilliant. Um, yeah. All right. Time's well, tied. Well, let's 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 do contacts and things like that. So, Andrew, outside of this podcast, how can people keep up with all the many things that you do? Well, not on Facebook, that's the sure thing. <laughs> not at the moment, no. But Until you are coming decide. back, aren't you? Well, I hope so, yeah. Fingers I don't know whether if they think I'm public enemy number one or what they think I'm up to, but I guess they'll eventually get round to looking at my case, um, looking at my ID I uploaded and working out whether I'm worth letting back in. Just got a load of emails come in, but it doesn't, no, it doesn't say anything, nothing from Facebook. So at the moment, you won't catch me um, in the large format photography podcast facebook group uh, so don't look, don't look for me there I, I don't know whether my face just disappears off the group you know like as though i never existed or all my posts are they still there or do they disappear i've no idea how this works when you've been banned by facebook yeah anyway so you won't catch me there but you will catch me on uh, twitter and instagram as warboys snapper warboys being the village that i live in um so mostly you'll find me there and then you'll find me every couple of weeks on the lensless podcast and also in the lensless podcast facebook group yeah, i'm just just wondering now yeah if, if if everything has disappeared that you've put in there uh really my word <laughs> oh you you have gone you've gone properly have i have i actually gone yeah you can have, to, not- you can have to apply to come back in <laughs> to our facebook group yeah yeah i'll have to ask to join yeah. And say, why do you answer the question? Why do you want to shoot large format photography? Exactly. And make sure you do answer the questions because, you know, as you know, we don't let everybody in. I know. I've deleted, I've, I've kicked out, not kicked out, I've rejected a couple of people just this week before I, before I myself got kicked off Facebook. <laughs> yeah. um, just, and, and just, just on that, uh, on, on that subject, um, if you are trying to join the group and you haven't answered any of the questions, then there's a reasonable chance you won't get in. Uh, and that's largely because it's not because we're Nazis. Yes, and, and things like that. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, it's um, it's literally we 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 have experience of Facebook groups, good and bad, and mm. the best Facebook groups are the ones where they have engaged people in, uh, rather than people. Who just so if you can't be asked to answer a, a simple question, yes, then, then you might we, be a robot. We figure we figure we don't want you. Yeah, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> put, it, put it bluntly. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So if you've if you've applied and you've not been a- approved, then apply again and answer the questions, please. Yeah. And, answer uh, the questions, and we'll yeah. let you in. Yeah. We, we don't blacklist it. Well, I, I won't let you in because <laughs> no, I need to. In. I need to apply myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh. So, so other than um, well, being able to at least get in touch with me via the Facebook group, how, how mm. can people get in touch with the show directly? Uh, they could email the show at the large format photography podcast at gmail.com or maybe it's large format. Does it have a the in front? Uh, it has the, we use the, the, the large, fo- the 
large format Please, photography yeah. podcast yeah. at gmail.com. That's it. Um, I think that's just about. Or they could um, they could send you a direct message on um, Facebook Messenger, couldn't they? Yeah, they could do. And you're on Twitter as well, anyway, aren't you? Yeah, Warboy Snapper. Snapper. So people you can, can get hold of you that way as well. They can. And most people do that way. Okay. Um, so, Alex, um, where are all the places that people can keep up with all the things that you do? Oh, it's pretty easy to find me on Instagram at, at Alex Burke Photo. And uh, my website is alexburkphoto.com. So, and and um, the website I really do, I try to have, I have a learn tab and under that is educational blog posts. And these are just free blog posts that tell you how I go backpacking, how I edit my scans, what kind of color films I'd like you to use, um, all sorts of stuff like that. So, I mean, it's just a lot of free resources. I do like helping the film community. I think it's been a fun journey. I don't like to think necessarily that I'm a master. I like to think that we kind of grow together, the film community, and there's always something to learn. So I like to pass that information along. And, and then, you have a, because I had to look at the 10 free pages that I was allowed to look at without spending $20. The 19th, <laughs> <and that's, laughs> that's the sort of thing that Simon Forster would approve of. <laughs> film, film in the digital age um, looks fantastic. And I, think yeah. I, I think I saw a bit of it in, did you not share a bit of this in that um, Darkroom Underground magazine? I may have. Yes, yeah, I think. I I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And uh, yeah, it's a great the book is really it's some of the blogs plus a lot of not in the blog material. It's 180 pages a PDF that's all about really everything to get into film. So whether you're kind of new or rather experienced, that's just whatever you might need. And not necessarily it's got some it's got some large format. It's just like generally if you're just getting into film or want to know more about film, it's a great resource. I like to think, and I've had a lot of people tell me, well, you know, I, even, I will even, give a shout out to all of the people who have had that book and really enjoyed. I do appreciate uh, it. Does, it does look, it does look great. Even someone, you know, f- for me, who has been just using film for years and years and years, you know, that just looking at the stuff you've got in there on color, which is an area that I struggle with, you know, so, uh, yeah, I think I'll have yeah, to, covers metering filters. It's obviously, it's focused on color. Um, so, yeah. but metering, filter usage, scanning. Uh, about the last third of the book is on scanning and such. So, yeah, that'll be um, good. Yeah. So, I, I think the free ten-page sample is just not going to cut it. I don't think so. I'm going to have to <laughs> dig deep and uh, yeah. shell out the the nineteen ninety-nine. <laughs> <laughs> dig deep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, okay, so for for me, I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. We also have a Instagram feed uh, called the Large Format Photography Podcast. Um, not a huge amount goes on there because we just post our uh, our artwork for each show. And a couple of things go on there, uh, but there you go. That's where you can find you. Could, you could make more use of that, though, couldn't you? Really, I you could guess start I could getting uh, people to put hashtags next to things and then that, you could that, feature pictures that, on there. That would require me to actually know what I'm doing. Right. Okay. Do you know how to, if you know how to do that, then we uh, could I, Look, I tried to set up a Facebook page <laughs> and ended up getting booted out of Facebook. Don't ask me. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm not going to start messing around with Instagram. I'll probably get kicked out of there as well. Yeah. It's a laudable aim and perhaps yeah. one day we might actually work out how to do it and uh, yeah. have the time to do it. We need well. a young person, don't we? we do, yes. Alex, what are you up to? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing this year, no. <laughs> yeah. 
Come on, 16,000 followers you've got on there. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, Alex, um, he's, I think you're quite qualified to do this job. So, uh, well well done and welcome aboard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is the pay good? <laughs> yeah. <There we> go. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, so, uh, other than that, uh, I've got a website called simonforsterphotographic.co.uk, which is full of lens caps uh, for smaller formats and things like that. And actually, I've, I think I've cracked making flexible caps to go over odd sized lenses so that could be of interest to people oh someone um, was flogging one of those on facebook i noticed before i got kicked out of it oh, <laughs> it was like a you know you get these products come up on they think you want to buy them mm -hmm. like you know sandals yeah, they, listen, they, they listen to your what you say yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i thought that's uncanny how did they know i wanted to buy incontinence pads <laughs> exactly <laughs> there, there are these fancy lens caps that seem to be made of some flexible rubbery material that you just sort of pull apart pull wide open and, and it clamps over that you need yeah. to get into that market well i need to check that out well certainly the ones that i'm making have got an element of flex to them and that's been something that's been a bit tricky for me to to yeah. to deal with but we've uh, mm. also got the ability to actually say things on them as well because i've got one here that says cook process lens 14 inch so well, hey. uh, so yeah so mine, mine are more mine are more special than those obviously you're uh, going to have something humorous written on there not well not, yeah, yeah not the name of the lens yeah um so um so yeah well yeah you can have anything you like on there as well so uh, if anybody's got some odd sized lenses that they're after a lens cap for then they get in touch with me directly um the only thing is that they, these things need to be very precise um so uh, literally i thought you said they were flexible they are they are but they're not that flexible you they're, know, so, they're precisely uh, flexible precise, yeah exactly you've probably got about i don't know you've got less than a millimeter uh, worth of flex there oh. um but you know you want to you want precision with we're large format photographers so you know mm. everybody's got a set of digital calipers that that does large format photography obviously obviously yeah exactly so uh, <laughs> on that um, uh, note of optimism um that's it for this week's show where uh, alex again thank you very very much for being with us yeah thanks for having me it's been great and uh, our music our amazing music uh, is uh, by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and it's called Two Finger Johnny um, and that's just about it so uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this show and uh, goodbye bye goodbye goodbye